Hello and welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and I'm really excited about today's episode, which is one of our first that focuses on the science related to the impact of large-scale crimes. Specifically, we're going to be talking about a recent research study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Open Access Journal, JAMA Network Open. And the article is titled, Prevalence of Depression and Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Flint, Michigan, Five Years After the Onset of the Water Crisis. And I'm excited because this article is co-authored by several folks, including our three guests for today's episode. Um, First is the first author of the article, Dr. Aaron Rubin, who is a postdoctoral fellow at both Duke University and the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Angela Moreland, who is the Associate Director of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center and is also the NMVVRC's Director of Data Collection and Evaluation. And Dr. Dean Kilpatrick, who regular listeners will know is not only my boss and the Director of the NMVVRC, but also a distinguished university professor at MUSC. Welcome, everybody. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Yep. Pleasure to participate. Yeah, wonderful to be here, Dan. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. Aaron, um, you're the first author of this study. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of things you were looking at and, and in a nutshell, what the findings were? Yeah, to give an overview of our study, we knew that the Flint water crisis was a uniquely stressful event. Um, It represents America's largest and longest lasting public works environmental disasters. We've known for several years that the Flint water crisis led to elevated mental health concerns among residents of the Flint community who lived through the crisis. And by that, I mean, we know that the crisis was uniquely stressful. It was a financial burden. It was an emotional burden. There were concerns for people who knew they'd been exposed to contaminated water and those who weren't sure, those who didn't know what health effects might come in the future. Um, And so surveys had been done in the past at a small scale using, you know, really brief survey questions to get at whether or not people were having emotional behavioral responses to the crisis that were impairing their day-to-day function. We wanted to follow up with a bigger, broader, and also more specific survey that tried to approach whether or not people were meeting DSM criteria for psychological disorders that we know are the most likely consequences of large-scale disasters. And that those are depression and PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. So for those who don't know, Aaron, um, the DSM is, is what? So the DSM, that stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. DSM is the reference guide for psychiatrists and psychologists who diagnose and treat psychological disorders. So we use the DSM to identify whether someone's mental health concerns rise to a level that we would qualify them as having a disorder that we want to treat or intervene on. Gotcha. 
So we, we did a broad survey of Flint residents. Um, our, our total respondents in the end was almost 2,000 respondents living across the city. They told us a lot about how they're doing now. They told us about their experiences during the water crisis. And they told us about other things in their lives that might influence how they're doing now, psychologically speaking. And I know we're going to dig into a lot of details, but our, our overall big impression findings were that rates of diagnosable depression and post-traumatic stress disorder in the Flint community today are very high. In fact, we found one in four of our respondents met criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder and one in five for depression. When we compared those levels to what I would call sort of base rates of depression and PTSD in the population of Michigan as a whole, or if you look at the U.S. as a whole, the amount of diagnosable mental illness we were determining in Flint was two to three to four to five times higher than what you see when you compare residents of Flint today to other populations. And so that's much higher than we expected, and it's much higher than we would want it to be. And that tells us that the water crisis is probably not over, and we need to do more to address this unmet mental health need. So using some quick math, which I should never be trusted to do without the assistance of a calculator, uh, that's basically saying you know 20 to 25% of the population of Flint has some pretty significant diagnostic level mental health disorder that is at least probably related to the water crisis? That's right. And I can tell you the numbers, 24% of our respondents met criteria for PTSD following our protocols and 22% met criteria for depression. So that tells us not only that a large swath of Flint residents today likely are experiencing problems with their thinking and feeling that are you know, numerous enough to meet criteria, but also that the problems are severe enough that it's interfering with some part of their lives, whether at work or at home. Yeah. I mean, and then these are not like um, insignificant mental health problems. If you're, if you're diagnosed with major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, um, the, there are you know, frequent symptoms that are occurring more often than not that, um, you know, are, are quite significant. This isn't, we're not, we're, we're not really talking about, oh yeah, there's that nuisance water crisis again. Gosh, I wish that weren't b- bugging me today. This is a, a, a significant level, uh, like you said, the diagnostic manual, a diagnostic level of impairment which is really quite remarkable. Um, You had mentioned sort of the base rate phenomenon, um, uh, the base rates of of depression and PTSD in the general population of of Michigan. Just for for comparison's sake, like if you did a random sample of the state of Michigan, how many people on a given day or what percentage of the people on a given day would you expect to have depression symptoms, or or, or, uh, not symptoms, but actual diagnosable depression? Yeah, so we we 
we don't have to guess because those surveys have been done and we were able to look at some of that information and you know we were finding around 22 percent uh we estimate flint residents meet criteria for depression in michigan as a whole it's more like under 10 percent okay and in the u.s as a whole it's closer to seven percent so these are you know depression and ptsd these are these are some of our more common and more impairing um, mental disorders. What we're finding is they are a lot more common in Flint. And I think earlier you asked, you know, to what extent can we tie one person's diagnosable mental health problems to the water crisis? Mm -hmm. And with this study, we're not really able to disentangle cause and effect. What we're able to say is, Five years after the crisis started, rates of mental health problems are far higher in Flint today than they are in other communities. What that probably represents is higher base rates in Flint for reasons we can talk about and contributions to mental health problems from the crisis itself. If we could have designed, you know, if we could have known in advance that the crisis was going to occur, we would have gone to the community and replicated this survey before the crisis and after the crisis. And then we could really know, you know, what changed as a result of the crisis. We don't have that kind of hindsight, but we did ask people about their experiences, things like how concerned they were about their exposures, how much they're worrying about their health or the health of their loved ones, how much confidence they had in the information being provided to them by public officials about the quality of their water. Mm -hmm. And we did find that all of those experiences were predictive of people's risk of psychological disorder today, five years later. Such that, you know, um, greater skepticism was associated uh, with higher diagnosis. I mean, how does, how, how did those relationships specifically play out? So we do have the numbers because we calculated them. For example, if you have a moderate or greater concern that your health or the health of a loved one was impacted by your exposure to contaminated water, we find that your odds of having depression today are twofold greater than average um, and about 60% higher for PTSD. If you told us that you had low confidence in the information provided by public officials, during the crisis, but actually still today, you've got about a 50% greater chance of having depression or PTSD. Wow. And you referenced earlier, Aaron, um, unmet mental health and psychological care needs for the greater Flint community. Can you expand on that? We're all kind of mental health professionals on, on this call, so it's probably pretty obvious to us that when 25% of the population has a pretty significant mental health disorder that, you know, you'd have some questions about the mental health infrastructure in the community to manage that kind of demand. But how, how big of an unmet demand or, or, or discrepancy between supply and demand for mental health services are we looking at in Flint? It's a great question that we can approach a few ways. The first thing I'd like to say is we decided to follow up many years after the crisis in part 
hoping that we would see the high rates of mental health concerns that had been reported during the crisis. We had kind of hoped that those would go down. And what we're seeing now is what I would call either a higher new baseline or just the persistence of problems that the crisis exacerbated. So folks can get over these kinds of disorders on their own, but at this point, I would be concerned that many of these issues, particularly PTSD, would be unlikely to remit on their own, and that now is a good time to provide additional resources for treatment. Um, we did ask folks if they were ever offered mental health services during or after the crisis. So it's now been seven years since the crisis started. Um, when we gathered our data, it was just before the pandemic started. So it was five years after the crisis. And most respondents told us, so about 75%, so two out of three respondents told us that they had never been offered mental health services to assist with their concerns related to the water crisis. Mm. So 25% um, were, most of those did go on to use the services. Uh, about 80% of people who were offered services went and used them, which wow. if you know anything about mental health service use, you know that's a really high number. I mean, 80% is very high. And we know there are a lot of barriers to people seeking or using mental health services, logistical barriers, financial barriers, stigma. So the fact that 80% of people who are offered services use them tells us folks in the community are looking for and want these services. And if we can somehow provide them at a greater level, it's likely we would see good uptake. And we did ask our data statistically whether folks who used services seem to benefit. And the answer was yes. Um, and in particular, if you use services, you're less likely to have depression today. You are also a little less likely to have PTSD, but the result there wasn't statistically significant. So, you know, we're not quite sure if that means the services didn't target PTSD symptoms or if for some reason at the time people weren't able to access, you know, trauma-informed care. We don't really know, but sure. all of the evidence we have suggests folks would use these services if we could offer them. Yeah. Well, that's that's um, some very interesting data, and and for folks out there who, like you said, are familiar a little bit with utilization rates. I mean, both both the rates of utilization there and the positive impact is are really kind of interesting and noteworthy findings as well. That um, eighty percent of the folks who were offered services use them, and uh, at least in, with respect to depression that those folks who used it got better. That's, that's pretty exciting, pretty exciting news uh, in general. And yeah. And I want to just correct myself briefly. I said 75% of folks had not been offered services. It was more like uh, just under 70%. So um, a, just over 30% of folks had been offered services. Okay. Okay, cool. Thanks. So, Angie, I'm going to shift the focus to you here a little bit um, because, um, you know, Aaron's just given us kind of a wonderful rundown of, of the richness of the data 
that were analyzed and the conclusions that were arrived at. But a lot of that information seems like it would be really difficult to get from people um, solely thinking of it from the perspective of research methodology. How did the research team go about finding and accessing residents of Flint and, and how did it get the information that Aaron's talking about? Hi, Dan. Thanks for acknowledging that. It is very difficult, I think, and we want it and very important because we want to make sure that we're capturing residents of Flint and capturing residents, you know, at a broad spectrum and making sure that multiple people have the opportunity to um to respond to the survey and to be able to be a part of the study. So what we used is called, it's an area probability sample um, of adults from the Flint community. So we use mail and web-based surveys. And what we did, what an area probability sample is, is we basically sent letters and these letters included a brief description of the study. And who we sent these letters to is we randomly selected households from within a geographical area. So within area probability sampling, you decide what area that is. We chose to use the U.S. Postal Service's delivery file. So basically all addresses that are within the Flint area were put, were able to be contacted. So of all of those potential addresses, um, so rather than using cell phones, we used addresses. That way we were making sure we were capturing Flint residents. Mm-hmm. So of those, we randomly selected um addresses within that and a brief description of the study was sent to all of those addresses. So we decided to send it to 10,000 addresses, which that's a lot, but anyone who receives mail knows that you're not going to respond to everything that you receive in the mail and that we knew that it will start to dwindle down from there. So we sent those out. When we send those, um, it is directed towards one adult from the household. So we want to make sure that we're representing households as a whole and not just a bunch of people from within a specific household. Okay. So we use a method that we basically use the most recent birthday method. So we just tell them, open this letter and whoever in your household above the age of 18, that's very important to note, whoever has the most recent birthday will be the one to respond to this. That sounds pretty random. Yeah, it is pretty random. And I think that a big piece of it is that within that, people will receive it and hopefully respond. So we actually had a fairly good response rate. Of that 10,000, there's always going to be a lot that don't have response. So we had a little over 2,000 access the survey, and then 1,970 completed the survey. So um, so we had a pretty good, it sounds like, you know, that's almost 2,000 out of 10,000. But when you look at address-based sampling, and you just think of yourself opening something in the mail and how often you respond to that. Um, it's a pretty good response rate. Is there any concern like that the people who opened their mail and did the survey might be different somehow from the people who didn't open the mail? Obviously, that's sort of the nature of large scale sampling and so forth. But is that is that anything that you guys worry about? That you can think about that. And that obviously is going to be a worry within any study that when you conduct a study, what are the differences between the people that, you know, agree to participate and those who don't or those who open their mail and those who don't a big, there's been a lot of research done in this area though. So we, we worked with apt, which is a survey research firm that we were, we've worked with, with a lot of our large scale studies. And this has been found to be a method that 
seems to be the most effective and tends to reach people in a way that we're looking at as far as addresses a large number of houses and make sure that we're accounting for all of those different things. So yes, there is always that concern, but this has lower likelihood for that concern than some other methods do. Dan, this is Dean. If I could just add one thing in, there are data uh, that are available from the Census Bureau, uh, you know, about the whole population of Flint Mm -hmm. and broken down by age. So you can look at Flint adults only. So one of the ways that you try to correct for the fact that maybe more folks of, of certain uh, with certain characteristics uh, respond, whereas others do not, is that you weight the data, uh, take adjusting it for uh, differences between the sample you got in terms of demographics and the population as a whole. And so many people think that that, that kind of weighting really does uh, a good job in terms of uh, <clears throat> adjusting for possible non-response. Gotcha. Uh, I would also say that, uh, you know, one thing that I found uh, interesting, which we mentioned in the article, was that you don't know when you send a letter out to people how many people have opened it, you know, how mm-hmm. many people throw it immediately in the trash, etc. But of the people who access the online material about the survey and read all of the, uh, you know, what participating is like and how confidential the data will be, which is uh, excessively confidential, we won't (laughs) share it with anybody, um, and how, you know, what the reimbursement would be if you completed the survey, uh, close to 90% of the people actually who we know read what the study was about and all the protections and everything like that agreed to participate and completed most of the survey. So that gives us some confidence that, you know, we're not just getting a random group of, of, of people who are very different from the people who completed the survey are very different from those who did not. Yeah. And, and so the survey itself, I mean, the letter basically was like, hey, here's the study, go online. And so the letter included a link that um, the, the reader would follow. Is that, is that the, the methodology, Angie? Yes, it did. So it had a link where people could go online and complete the survey. They also did have the option for a paper and pencil survey. So they were, yeah, they were able to do either. What we did find is that 63% of people completed the online version of the survey and 37% completed uh, the paper and pencil. So definitely more people completed online, but they did have that option. That's really interesting. I I guess I didn't realize that the uh, paper and pencil uh, group was that large. That's that's just sort of intellectually interesting to me from a, a research methods perspective. So. It is. And I think some of that, I mean, it could have to do with multiple different factors, but thinking just through the demographics and through the people in the Flint area, it was a variety of ages. A lot of these people have lived there for a long period of time. So um, it will be interesting to look at some of the demographics kind of of who completed the online versus the paper. Right. Thank you. Well, that sounds like an enormous amount of work. And then um, I know that when you get a survey of, of 2,000 participants, managing the data is also uh, kind of a big challenge as well. And so kudos to you and your team. Uh, and and the, I know we had some research partners on this as well for, for managing that data set and uh, getting it in shape to be analyzed. That's, that's tough to do. 
Um, Dean, I, I wanted to shift to you next and ask you a little bit about what you think these data tell us about the impact of these, I mean, for lack of a better word, I'm, I'm sort of calling them man-made disasters that are, are really large in scale and, and affect, in, in this case, basically an entire city. What do you think we've learned about that? And, and considering there's a, another U.S. city right now that's undergoing a, a somewhat similar crisis in, in Jackson, Mississippi, um, uh, what lessons do we need to be taking from these findings? Well, I think there are several lessons. I mean, one lesson is there are certain aspects of some of these man-made disasters that, that occur through possible negligence and perhaps even criminal negligence. I mean, there's still a lot of litigation, both uh, criminal charges and civil uh, litigation that's going on. So that's not all sorted out. But one of the things that, um, that really makes things worse is that when there's a great deal of uncertainty, um, as we note in the paper, uh, the initial response when some people started complaining about the water after the water source was shifted, which is what caused the problem in the first place, was that uh, people reinsured or were reassured by everyone, uh, literally a lot of governmental officials at the state level, local level, health department, you name it, that the water was safe, when in fact the water turned out not to be safe. So, and then uh, people were saying, well, the water's still safe, but boil it. Well, you know, if you've got lead in your water, uh, boiling lead in the water does not make the water safe. If you've got bacteria in the water, it might make it safe. So the uncertainty about how much exposure you got the, to, to lead and other contaminants, uh, the uncertainty about what the health effects might be from that exposure to yourself or your, uh, you know, your children or other family members, uh, uncertainty about how soon it will take the health effects to manifest themselves. So, for example, if you start smoking cigarettes today, you might not have serious problems for 40 years. Same thing mm -hmm. is true about lead exposure and uh, these other co contaminants. So uncertainty really breeds a lot of stress and lack of ability to trust officials who you look for accurate information for, that's that's a, a recipe for uh, creating a lot of psychological problems and inability uh, to, uh, uh, you know, get, get out of those problems because you've got this continual stressor and all of these uncertainties and unknowns that you're dealing with. The other thing uh, that I think we've learned, and, and we didn't emphasize this in today's discussion, but a couple of other findings I'd like to mention is that it turned out that people who'd experienced other traumatic events in the past, and particularly if they involved a previous physical or sexual assault, were much more likely to have uh, PTSD and depression even after the, uh, you know, the water crisis exposure, meaning that it, uh, you know, a lot of ways to think about that, but it may be that people are having some pre-existing depression and PTSD from that, those previous exposures, or it may be that they were better and now all of a sudden you pile the stress of the water crisis 
onto them and it, it, it either causes new PTSD and depression or exacerbates old PTSD and depression. But in other words, your history and, you know, particularly if you've had a lot of adversity in the past, uh, makes you more vulnerable when something like a water crisis uh, uh, or other infrastructure failure happens. Uh, the third thing is, is that if you have good social support, you did better, notwithstanding whether you'd been through the water crisis, whether you'd had uh, previous uh, uh, traumatic events, including physical and sexual assault. So that matters. I mean, having good social support is great. A lot of people don't. I mean, particularly if they're uh, living in very challenged communities, which Flint is and has been. So at any rate, the, the other reason why I think people have been very interested in the findings of this study is we've got a lot of old lead pipes out there in, in a variety of communities, including Charleston. We've got a lot of uh, water supply problems around the country. The EPA has indicated that, that that's a severe problem because, uh, and, and ironically, in a lot of older cities, uh, when they first had indoor plumbing, uh, you know, it's a it's a bigger issue than it might be in some brand new cities where the the infrastructure, water infrastructure, and other things is is newer. Um, so at any rate, I, I think this pushes a lot of buttons, and so therefore, uh, what we found in Flint, uh, I would not be surprised if we found in in, in other communities that had had a similar if not as large magnitude problems, but, um, but, but it, 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 you know, it's tapping into some things that really contribute a lot to, to poor mental health. Gotcha. Any, any, um, anything to add to the big picture, Aaron or Angie, anything you wanted to emphasize? No, I don't think so. I think this was a great overview. And I would only add that the water crisis we're seeing in Jackson, Mississippi is unique from the Flint water crisis in that there was an interaction with a storm. It is a signal that these kinds of crises where climate change and aging infrastructure and systemic underinvestment in communities of color collide to result in catastrophic infrastructure failures. I think all the evidence suggests we're going to be seeing more of these. And um, as mental health practitioners, we should be ready for them. Uh, let's prevent them if we can. Let's acknowledge that um, we might not be able to prevent them all. And can we learn from Flint and Jackson, Mississippi, a way to be nimble and prepared to meet the mental health needs of the next community exposed to a water crisis? One other thing which is important to add, uh, which I had forgotten to, to do so, uh, which may be the most key thing uh, to bear in mind, I believe what the findings of our study in Flint showed is that you may be able to fix the pipes and the water systems, but their residual effects, uh, not only of possible effects of, of lead and other contaminants on people, but they're also residual mental effects. And so I think from an engineering point of view, people might focus on, let's just get the, uh, the 
reason for the, the bad water fixed, and then we can move on. We don't have to worry about it. But there's long-term, and I, and I think our study showed that, that there are long-term mental health consequences of exposure to a situation like this that are going to linger if not addressed. And so hopefully uh, planners, uh, engineers, uh, uh, others who are in the public sphere who are uh, really, it's their job to worry about their community. When something like this does happen, if we can't prevent it, I mean, preventing it would be great. But if we can't prevent it, we need to realize that that we need to tend to the psychological, long-lasting psychological effects as much as we do to fixing the infrastructure. Yeah. It's not enough to fix the pipes. It's it's to fix the pipes and the damage that, that the crisis has done. I think that's a really important takeaway. And um, I hope I hope that that lesson gets learned. And, and Aaron, I think your comments are um, chilling, but also insightful that, uh, you know, uh, this is probably going to happen again. And uh, folks need to not only try and stop it from happening, but be prepared uh, in a myriad of ways when it does. So, um, well, this is a, a, a really interesting research study and an important one as the large amount of media attention that the findings have generated would indicate. And I just want to thank you all as some of the uh, authors and co-authors of this study for conducting it and sharing the resources, both with the scientific community in print and in the various media outlets where you've uh, gone on to provide important context and and more lay audience uh, information as well. I think that that's critically important and uh, I hope folks are paying attention. Um, It's not all, you know, uh, bullets and bombs when it comes to uh, large-scale violence and and large-scale disaster. And I think your study does a great job of, of highlighting that. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you all very much. Uh, This has been another episode of the Mass Violence Podcast, uh, the official podcast of the NMVVRC. Thanks for listening.